Take your best shot. I will offer no resistance. Then it will be my turn. Welcome back and welcome to the bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering Black Panther Volume 4, Number 23, War Crimes, Part 1. Plays need players and this one sees two of the world's greatest, the living symbols of their respective countries, clashing. The first needs no introduction, but that's not how things work here on me and my friend Pete. And even if it was, it can't happen when a spotlight's on a kid from Brooklyn who went from a frail boy barely able to handle the common cold to a man who can go toe-to-toe with the Incredible Hulk. Truth Justice in the American way have seemed to me for many years to be catchphrases used by people who do the bare minimum to uphold the words, but there's one man, one guy who says the words and you can't help but believe him. I'm talking about Captain Steve Rogers. I'm talking about Captain America. Captain America first appeared in Captain America Comics number one in March of 1941 for Timely Comics, a predecessor of Marvel Comics, and wasted no time showing what the ideals of America were about. In one of the most iconic comic covers of all time, especially for a debut, Captain America introduced himself to the world by punching real-world supervillain Adolf Hitler square across the jaw, just in case the Aryan shit-stain thought Cap's blonde hair and blue eyes made him an ally. Captain America's origin story is one of the most famous in the history of comics as well. Steve Rogers, a small, frail Brooklynite born in the Lower East Side, was prone to sickness but wanted to enlist in World War II to fight against the Axis. He signed up for an experimental procedure after being classified as 4F by the military and told he was unable to serve. The experimental procedure, a serum created by Dr. Abraham Erskine that would transform normal men into super soldiers. The United States planned to use this battalion of super soldiers to bring the fight right up to Hitler's front door. Rogers underwent the process and was transformed from a meek young man into the height of human perfection but the battalion would not come to be. Erskine was killed by Nazi sympathizers, taking the formula for the creation of the super soldier to his grave. There would be only one superpowered symbol of American ideals, and that one would be Captain Steve Rogers. Captain America is six feet, two inches tall, and 240 pounds on the way in. He's got blue eyes and blonde hair. I read somewhere that Simon and Kirby chose the ideal Aryan specimen as a fuck you to Hitler. His dream man would spend forever fighting against his evil vision of the world. I think that's the boss's power move in comics history. Steve Rogers, now armed with an indestructible shield made from one of the world's rarest metals, vibranium, took the mantle of Captain America and has been giving villains both foreign and domestic Brooklyn-style chin checks ever since. Cap stat cheat? I'm glad you asked. The super soldier serum Steve Rogers drank transformed his body from fragile to peak physical condition. He can bench press upwards of 1,000 pounds, run a mile in less than a minute. He's fast enough to dodge bullets. His muscle fatigue is nearly non-existent. So when he says he can do this all day, he means it. And boy does he get to doing. Steve Rogers is considered one of the greatest hand-to-hand -hand fighters in the Marvel Comics universe, combining boxing, Aikido, Judo, Karate, Jiu-Jitsu, and Kickboxing, which combined with his shield and enhanced reflexes, gives him a wholly unique fighting style that makes him a devastating opponent to anyone who faces him, from the Red Skull to the Red Hulk. His shield is crafted primarily of vibranium, from Wakanda, a Marvel metal that absorbs vibration upon impact, making it the ultimate defensive weapon. But if you think Cap's just standing behind it, 
Here's another thing coming. Cap can hurl the shield with devastating accuracy and has shown he can drop multiple enemies with a single toss of the weapon. All this and it's nothing at all compared to the greatest gift he brings to the superhero community. Captain America is one of the world's greatest tacticians and second to none as a field commander. Under his leadership, the Avengers have rallied against impossible odds on more than one occasion to save the world. But the respect runs deeper than that. In situations where Marvel super teams have to team up against existential threats, Cap is routinely chosen to coordinate the efforts of the world super team to lead them to victory. During the Secret Wars, for example, Cap was chosen almost unanimously by the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, and the X-Men to lead. All that and it's nothing, nothing compared to the greatest gift he brings to the world. A real love for the American ideals, often touted in this country, rarely practiced. Steve Rogers is more than the uniform. During the Watergate scandal, he relinquished the title, calling himself nomad when he believed he could not wear the flag of a country so blatantly at odds with what he thought it should stand for. Captain America, in my reading of the hero, and I am a fan to be sure, always does what he believes is right for everyone. Not America, not just America's interest alone, but everyone. And speaking of everyone, a lot of men have darned the stars and stripes in the Marvel Universe. His best friends, the Falcon and Bucky Barnes, aka the Winter Soldier, each had stints as Captain America. We had a man named William Nasland, another named William Burnside, and a black man named Isaiah Bradley who demolished the German concentration camp with his bare hands. But none of them have filled the role with as much glory and honor as Steve Rogers. He truly is an American ideal, patriotism without zealotry, always honest, always just, and about as American as a Dodgers-Yankees World Series. He is revered by all heroes. The Thunder God Thor himself says Cap is the only mortal man he'd follow into battle. And my friend Pete idolizes him. He's probably your favorite hero's favorite hero. One of a kind. I've added a link to howtolovecomics.com that has a great list of top 10 Captain America stories in the show notes. We got the challenger, and that's a hell of a challenger, but let's get to the champ. The king of Wakanda. Ibombe! The king of the dead. Ibombe! The king of Marvel's box office solo hero films. Don't be mad at us, baby. We love our king. Ibombe! The king of kings. Ibombe! T'Challa. Ibombe! Son of T'Chaka. Ibombe! The Black Panther. The Black Panther first appeared in Fantastic Four number 52 in July of 196 for none other than the House of Ideas, Marvel. He's six foot even and 200 pounds soaking wet. He has brown eyes and black hair and black skin, baby. He's the pinnacle of representation in the Marvel Universe for black excellence. In fact, in excellence, period. T'Challa was born the crown prince of the most wealthy and technologically advanced country in the Marvel Universe, Wakanda, to father T'Chaka and mother Ramonda. Wakanda sits on the largest vibranium deposit on Earth, and this deposit is the backbone to their thriving economy and technological advances. Because of this, and imperialism by global superpowers, the country has a staunch global policy of isolationism and takes great pride in being an African country never conquered or colonized by the outside world. Despite this, T'Challa was educated not only at home in his country, but in the finest schools in Europe and America as well. His origin story, despite his many blessings, still holds more than a hint of tragedy. There are two and both follow the same premise. I'll give you one here, I'll give you the next, then where are you here? His Silver Age origin story sees him training diligently to claim the mantle of Black Panther after his father is murdered by a physicist named Ulysses Claw, who invaded Wakanda unsuccessfully, trying to gain vibranium for a sound device that could craft hard images from sound. Upon his father's death, T'Challa vowed to avenge him, as all great comic book heroes do. Growing into a man, he challenged his uncle for the mantle of Black Panther and successful, decided to test his mettle against America's favorite familial super team, the Fantastic Four. He beats them all handedly, and the fight only ends in a draw thanks to Johnny Storm's college roommate and deus ex machina, 
Indigenous America's very own Wyatt Wingfoot. Black Panther defeats Claw and decides upon the urging of the Fantastic Four to use his powers for the betterment of mankind. And his power? Black power on Max Tilt. A secret Wakandan ritual linked to the Panther God Bass is given to Chala Advance. It's is so powerful he can memorize tens of thousands of cents. He has increased strength, speed, healing, durability, agility, stamina, and reflexes. Though skilled in various forms of martial arts through extensive training, Black Panther uses a fighting style of his own creation that mimics the movements of animals specifically the Black Panther. He is resistant to magic, an expert hunter, tracker, strategist, politician, inventor, and scientist. And as Black Panther, armed with the Black Panther suit of the Wakandan Panther coat. If you're familiar with the movies, you know this suit is vibranium weaved, allowing him to absorb massive amounts of kinetic energy, which allows him to fall from great heights, reduce the blows of punches thrown, and making him resistant to most ballistics from gunshots to small explosions without injury. It's outfitted with vibranium tipped claws that can slice through nearly anything standing in his way. There are also gas emitters in the fingertips and often devices in the boots allowing him to scale walls with ease. The eyes of the costume grant him increased night vision on top of his already increased night vision. All this power in Black Panther has black privilege behind it. He is the king of a sovereign nation as mentioned and the richest person in the Marvel Universe with a net worth upwards of $500 billion. That's a lot of Panther suits. He is, through his kingship, an expert politician and savvy statesman. He's been a member of the Avengers, though mainly to spy on the team, and a member of Marvel's Illuminati, five heroes from different corners of the Marvel Universe who plan against the worst in secret. Black Panther is respected by many of their heroes he comes in contact with because of his candidness and coolness in the face of danger. Fun fact, he's the bulletproof bruiser, Luke Cage's idol. Of all the things the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done, I think the greatest to me is making an African man powerful and unabashedly black on the silver screen. I've harped on and on about representation being so important, but Black Panther is why. I have never in my life seen so many black faces smiling with pure joy than watching the Black Panther movie starring Chadwick Boseman when it was released. And to the legend Chadwick Boseman, the man who brought the King of Kings to life on the silver screen, thank you through the ether forever. I've added a list of Black Panther official storylines in the show notes. All that said, we've got the players. Let's play. Where are you? Here. This volume of the Black Panther gives us an updated origin story of the character. It begins with the story Who is the Black Panther, a tale that opens showing failed invasion attempts of Wakanda through the ages, beginning in the 5th century AD, and ending with the Black Panther defeating Captain America in 1944. We see T'Challa in the next issue battling and defeating his uncle for the right to wear the Black Panther mantle. Meanwhile, we see the villain Claw recruiting various other superpowered people for his own planned invasion attempt of Wakanda. Choosing none other than Spider-Man villain the Rhino, the greatest villain France has ever known, Batroc, and an unknown body jumper who begins the tale jumping from the body of a husky black-haired man and into a blonde-haired blue-eyed lady of the evening. We see how Claw murdered King T'Chaka as well. After a failed sniper shot through vibranium lace bulletproof glass, Claw, now a Belgian assassin, using the shot as a diversion, sprang up through the floor of T'Chaka's hotel room, unloading a submachine gun into the side of the attacking T'Chaka. The king dead, Claw turned the gun on Ramonda, his wife, pregnant at the time with her daughter Shuri. But Claw didn't take the crown prince into account. Young T'Challa, picking up a discarded gun from the floor, clawed twice on the shoulder, saving the life of his pregnant mother and forcing Claw to flee. Barely alive from blood loss, the Belgian government transformed Claw into a living weapon, his right hand replaced with a giant morphing claw. Back in the present, T'Challa is crowned king and receiving calls from world leaders and congratulations. Even Nelson Mandela! Meanwhile, the body snatcher heads to the Vatican to recruit another member of Claw's team. None other than the Black Knight. However, I don't think this is Dane Whitman, the version we know from Avengers number 357. In bonus episode Suit Up, here on me and 
and my friend Pete. But the plot thickens as we find out that these people being selected are working with Claw on behalf of their respective governments in hopes to gain entry to Wakanda. The Vatican included. Black Knight recruited, Claw then reaches out to the leader of Naganda, a nearby African country, to use Naganda as a staging ground for his assault. As if this weren't bad enough, he also enlists the Russian radioactive man to destroy Wakanda's mound of vibranium. All the players set, Claw begins his invasion campaign, and the United States, refusing to be kept out of the loop, reveal they've begun making an army of undead soldiers to quote-unquote aid Wakanda in fending off Claw's attack. But Wakanda didn't ask for aid. Their air force drops the Rhino, the Black Panther's elite guard, the Dora Milaje, drop Batrock, Shuri, using the Black Knight's ebony blade, takes takes care of Radioactive Man by slicing him in half, as the King of Kings himself ends the threat of Black Knight and Claw, seemingly ending the latter man's life with a vibranium-tipped spear. The American undead army arrives at the end of the battle, telling T'Challa they'll help with the cleanup, and T'Challa says, if you stay on my land for more than an hour, it'll be treated as an act of war. The US takes the kind threat and gets out of there. They seems one, but Black Panther's cousin, gifted the role of ambassador to the United States, is body snatched by the body snatcher. Next story arc has us in New York City following hero for hire, Luke Cage, who's providing protection for a rapper named Pookie, who is no lie, the spitting image of Sean Diddy Combs. A news bulletin says Black Panther came to New York and everyone is wondering why. But Luke Cage knows. He thinks Black Panther has returned to the United States to find himself a wife. This starts the two the hard way story. For those not up on Black American culture, this title is a play on Three the Hard Way, one of the greatest action films of all time in the black community, starring Fred Williamson, Jim Kelly, and Big Jim Brown. Love the nod to the culture. Check this movie out if you can. Back to, and Black Panther searches long and hard. He proposes to a former girlfriend, Monica Lynn, who tells him his life's too dangerous and more important, his mama doesn't like her. Monica knows the rules. She tells him besides, he knows the woman he wants to marry, so he needs to stop wasting her time. Black Panther shows up to the club where Cage is, and we watch Pookie the rapper backhand his girlfriend with a fist for speaking with King T'Challa. Cage thinks he's gonna have to fight his idol as the Dora Milaje make quick work of Pookie's goons, but winds up catching a bullet shot from Pookie's gun at the Black Panther, saving his idol's life. Black Panther shows up at Luke Cage's safe house and apologizes for Cage losing his job, but wonders if the hero for hire would like a new one. You know Cage said yes, and you know ninjas burst in right after he did. Ninjas with guns who shoot Luke Cage in the back of the head at point blank range. Bulletproof. The fight spills out onto the street, and I shit you not, we have gangbangers pull out and start blasting at the ship, releasing the ninjas because, quote, my man Luke's up in there, gotta help a brother out. The crowd reaction in this issue, number five, would make Ditko proud, and makes me proud because of how it's dripping with Harlem swag. The ninjas turn out to work for none other than Fu Manchu, renaming himself Han to spite Western racism in his name. For those who don't know, Han is the father to arguably the Marvel U's premier hand-to-hand -hand fighter, Shang-Chi. Y'all know my man is Danny Rand, but I've begun collecting Shang-Chi to see if he's really real. I wanna be objective. Back to. So T'Challa and Luke travel to China to figure out why Han attacked them. And Han says, King T'Challa, I want to introduce you to my daughter, Kwe Far. He wants Black Panther to marry his daughter. And in the words of Luke Cage, and not the fugly daughter either. She fine. She is a gorgeous woman, I must say. Back to. Panther says Kwe Far is beautiful, but his heart belongs to another. And Han snaps, going full on racist. Hot, hot. I offer my daughter to you, a subhuman ape, and you reject her? Luke Cage says now he's gotta tax him. Han backhands his daughter and disowns her, telling her she can't even seduce a hot guay, a derogatory term for black people in China. Luke says not another female getting slapped. That's twice in 24 hours. And kaboom, Shang-Chi enters the room and Black Panther says Shang-Chi's a better fighter than Daniel Rand. I don't understand why that had to come up here, but it did. And Luke's not trying to hear it, I ain't either. 
so we can move along. Han sticks his ninjas on to the hard way in Shang-Chi, and the three decimate them as they should. After Luke survives a full-on blast from a fire-breathing dragon, he tells Panther to go on a date with the woman. It couldn't hurt. The next issue, we see two black teenage boys in the south racing home after dark when they're surrounded by vampires. Southern vampires. One vampire screams, I call first bite, before his head is quickly removed from his shoulders, and we see none other than Marvel Studios' first superhero, Blade, remove the vamp's head from his shoulders, saying, thought he said first to die. My bad. We find out after a tree comes alive and tortures a vampire that Blade's running with Brother Voodoo, a former Sorcerer Supreme himself. Meanwhile, Luke and T'Challa head to the American South so T'Challa can pledge his support in aiding the Gulf region affected by Hurricane Katrina. That's the noble end, but he also expects battle and Luke Cage is always down for that. We see Monica Rambeau next. Fans of WandaVision know Rambeau if you don't. She has the ability of energy absorption, generation, and manipulation, and she is a gorgeous black woman. Can't beat it. You can only tie. She's in New Orleans as well, trying to figure out what's going on in her hometown. We see a group of racist capitalists in a mansion in New Orleans planning to use the levees breaking to rebuild New Orleans in their own image when a vampire comes for the ringleader, a man called the Colonel, who really does look like Colonel Sanders, the chicken man. Panther and Cage arrive in Louisiana and get right to work searching for survivors when they're attacked by a vampire. They link up with Brother Voodoo and Blade and tear through a horde of the undead. Brother Voodoo confronts the leader of the vampires in another world realm, but the vampire escapes. In the real world, the vampire horde attacks the child's ship with the Dora Milaje inside, and Panther darns his thrice-blessed armor, consecrated in the name of the Panther God and the Black Knight's ebony sword, a weapon of the Roman Catholic Church. We got Black Panther Vampire Hunter. Panther kicked game and inspiration to Monica Rambeau, telling her she's a goddess, and now it's time for her to act like it. She uses her light manipulation to fly around New Orleans as a beam of sunlight, killing all the vampires in minutes while Blade takes out the King Vampire. And still no wife for the Panther. We find out Black Panther is going to see the X-Man and Weather Goddess Storm, and Luke Cage reveals he doesn't like her. He says, you know how Africans are with Black Americans, stuck up and arrogant. Panther stares at him a moment and asks, you hit on her and she turned you down, huh? Kate says, that's not the point. But it is! We find out Storms and Panther's histories are tied much closer together than originally known through a story involving the great freedom fighter, Malcolm X. Panther drops Luke off at home, who grabs his daughter Danielle up immediately and gives her a kiss, and Panther rolls out to find his future queen. We get a flashback of T'Challa and Storm together as teenagers, young and carefree, but T'Challa has responsibilities, and haunted by his desire for revenge on Claw, he ends their relationship, breaking Storm's heart. We see enslaved women freed by Storm in a torrential wind and rain, taking the time to use one trafficker's gun as a lightning rod, reducing him to ashes. Wolverine's here too, you know an X-Man can't travel without the Kunuk, so here he is. T'Challa shows up shortly after and gets down on one knee. He says, I want you, girl. Will you marry me? We get a great issue next of Panther fighting off the Arabian night. Don't ask, while Storm refuses to give him an answer. She finally agrees to spend more time with him, and they head to Wakanda on T'Challa's private jet, making love the entire time in the eye of a hurricane. Eat your heart out, Fifty Shades. Aurora meets Ramonda, T'Challa's mother, who says that Aurora is a mighty warrior and woman, and tells her that T'Challa never stopped loving her. T'Challa asks Aurora again if she'll marry him, and Aurora says yes. That's a power couple. And the entire Marvel Universe is talking. We see the Avengers get the invite. Spite is excited too. Wife on his arm. Slow down, Tiger. We're gonna get there. We see the X-Men, Cyclops lamenting the loss of a great leader, Nightcrawler and Wolvie Matchy staying in Africa, and Kitty reprimanding them all, saying they should be happy for their friend. We see the Fantastic Four, T'Challa's oldest superhero friends, receive the invite, and Johnny says Panther and Storm getting married is the hottest couple ever. Sifu Hot Rod knows a good-looking couple. He spends half his time as half of one. Sue calls Storm lucky twice earning jealous glances from Reed and Ben. 
We have an African woman named Princess Xanda in the south of France, wanted in 15 countries, saying she's supposed to marry the King of Kings, and even the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are talking about it, saying it could be a disaster. Panther is a major player. He's going to have Fidel Castro and the President of the United States at his wedding. Unheard of. Aurora and T'Challa even sent an invitation to an unknown black superhero in my hometown of the Bronx, New York, one Isaiah Bradley former Captain America. Even Storm's ex, the indigenous American mutant inventor Forge, probably her greatest love interest, is happy for the two. It's finna be a celebration. And there are two more people who need inviting. Aurora's long lost grandparents tracked down using the King of Kings vast resources. All this happening in the body snatcher from way back, having stolen T'Challa's cousin's body, makes his way back to Wakanda for the celebration as Manape, one of the king's greatest villains decides it's time to make his power play. Meanwhile, Luke Cage and Logan, aka Wolverine, agree to plan T'Challa's bachelor party. Aurora, Sue Storm, and Kitty Pride go shopping for a wedding dress and lambast the salesman for being racist when he tells them a black woman came in already saying she was getting married to the Black Panther. Storm catches up to Princess Xanda, lays hands on her, and convinces the woman to stop impersonating her. A funny thing happens on the way to the wedding. Speedball and the New Warriors, a group of mutants with their own reality television series, get into a fight with a group of villains way out of their league. One of them, a villain with the ability to explode on command named Nitro, does, killing upwards of 600 people, mostly children. The United States government decides it's time to rein superheroes in. There will be no more fighting with their own discretion. They will work for the government or they will retire. Captain America refuses to support this law, asking what happens when they're forced to go somewhere they think is wrong by the government, or worse, are stopped from helping people who need it by the government. Iron Man, one of the architects of the bill, tries to convince Captain America to join. But Cap refuses, becoming a fugitive from justice. A line is drawn in the sand, Iron Man and those who support the Superhuman Registration Act on one side, Cap and those who oppose it on the other. My people, we got Marvel's first civil war. But there won't be fighting today. Remember when I told you way back in the suit-up bonus issue that Watu the Watcher shows up to witness matters of great importance? My man is in his fanciest high-collared cape, and he's here too. Meanwhile, both Iron Man and Captain America refuse to stay and leave upset. But we've got President Bush in the building. Castro's in the building, Nelson Mandela's in the building, Oprah's here, everybody's dressed to the nines, but nobody's more stunning than the weather goddess herself. You know fashion is important here on me and my friend Pete, and because of how amazing this dress is, I'm going to have to send you out in search of it yourself. You'll thank me when you see it. Manape, finding out he's invited to the wedding, is having a great time drinking expensive scotch when, of course, my friend Pete insults him by mistake, and the two get into a one-on-one -on -one brawl. You know Spidey gave him the hands. The issue ends with none other than a hologram wishing congratulations from none other than the Latvarian lion himself, telling T'Challa congratulations and asking in the mighty monologuer's manner if they could be friends. The wedding ends and we leave the Black Panther series for a moment to jump into the Marvel crossover, Civil War number three. We find out that at T'Challa's wedding, Snoop's Richard, Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, tried to get him to join Iron Man's side, but T'Challa refused. He says Wakanda doesn't like when the outside world interferes in their issues and he can only assume the feeling's mutual. Reed says the president's asking, but T'Challa doesn't owe any favors to George Bush. He says no, and for the record, no black person owes any favors to George Bush. As I mentioned, sides were chosen and we see fugitives Captain America, Daredevil, Hercules, and Goliath having coffee in their secret identities when they hear of a petrochemical plant fire and spring into action. But it's a trap! Spidey on Iron Man's side, the wrong side, tries to convince Cap to stand down. And we know Cap can't do that. Two sides get into an epic battle, and Thor, long missing, returns back from the dead and immediately kills Goliath with the bolts of lightning. Remember in the JJ's Beef episode when I said a hero tried to incinerate Cap's team of heroes and Sue Storm saved their lives? 
happened in this issue right here. This issue also led to both Spidey and Sue Storm switching sides in the fight, and Spidey paid for his allegiance to Iron Man dearly, way more than any other hero. Don't even get me started, it still makes me teary-eyed, seriously. Anyway, with the Marvel Universe at odds and Black Panther refusing to pick sides, he feels partly responsible for the death of Bill Foster, also known as Goliath, and with his new bride Aurora at his side, he returns to the United States to attend Bill Foster's funeral and begin a campaign of subversion against the Superhuman Registration Act, which he believes, although it started in America, could quickly gain global prominence and lead to war if not checked. And oh baby, that's where we are. We've got me, we've got you, we've got no further ado, we've got THE Black Panther, number 23, War Crimes, part one. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. So the credits on this one, we have Reginald Hudlin writing, we have Coy Turnbull penciler, we have Don Ho with Sal Regla and Jeff De Los Santos as inkers, we have J.D. Smith as the colorist, we have VC's Gent as letterer, Daniel Ketchum, assistant editor, Axel Alonzo, editor, Joe Cazada, chief, Dan Buckley, publisher. The cover of this issue, like many of the Marvel Civil War crossover events, is an action shot filling half the page with the other half just a negative space with the title Civil War at its center. At the border, dividing the two halves, we get the title of the comic, Black Panther, and beneath it, a Marvel Comics event. The artwork in the upper half is some of my favorite, but I'm not surprised as the artist responsible, Michael Turner, is my all-time favorite artist. Shout out to my GOAT artist through the ether, the immortal Michael Turner. Thank you again. The background is an alleyway of dingy red brick, and we see the Black Panther in his thrice-blessed armor, the ebony blade once belonging to the Black Knight in his right hand. The thrice-blessed armor is lined in a vibranium silver from the King of Kings' shoulders to his fingertips, where it ends in sharp claws. Claws he's using to swipe through the chainmail of Captain America's armor, who is jumping back, his shield attached to his left wrist. It's beautiful and dynamic in the smaller space, but I'm sure the real beauty's inside. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the Black Panther holding the scales of justice above his head in his right hand. On the left balance, we see Captain America standing heroically, facing his once friend and current enemy Iron Man who is standing on the other balance with clenched fists. We get a recap beneath this image. I've given most of the deets, so I'll read the final caption. To assuage the fears of those who would see them as a threat and to ensure Wakanda's security in a world rocked by civil war in the United States, the Black Panther and Storm thought it best to embark upon a diplomatic tour amongst the larger centers of global power. However, over the course of their goodwill tour, the newlyweds found themselves drawn into the conflict in America and into a direct confrontation with the Superhuman Registration Act's strongest supporter, Iron Man. And we're off. Page 2 opens to an image of Bill Foster wrapped like a mummy with chains roped around his chest, rain falling on his body. We see two people standing beside his grave, but they're ants compared to him, and we realize Bill Foster is still dead in his giant form, Goliath. We hear his mother speaking beneath the umbrella above her head. They've wrapped my boy in a top. A top, like a dead dog. And then they lowered him with a crane. All those powers, that fancy technology at their disposal, and they wrap him in a tarp and lower him on a chain. The next panel we see T'Challa and Aurora, both dressed in black, Aurora wearing her classic black headdress and lightning bolt earrings. They're standing beneath an umbrella covering the mother and father of Bill Foster as his sister and her son stand stage right, both in black, watching. T'Challa says if Miss Foster would like, he'll take Bill's body back to Wakanda and give him a real hero burial with a coffin. Bill's sister, dressed in a black suit and purple shirt with gold door knockers in her ears, erupts in anger and grief to starch page three saying, can you shrink him down? Because I don't know that they even tried. 
It's like, okay, we get the message. If you use an Aryan Thunder God to blow a hole in big old black Goliath, her father snaps at her in the next panel. A tear running down his eyes, he tells her not to go down the road of conspiracy theories. That what the heroes did was wrong, but to stay on the truth. Talk like this only detracts from the truth. His daughter replies that he taught her to consider all possibilities, and speaking objectively, she may have a point. Despite the skirmishes the heroes got into during the war before Civil War issue number three, no heroes were killed. She collapses into her father's arms in the next panel, saying she misses her brother. In the final panel, we get a long shot of Aurora and T'Challa staring at one another. Aurora, a look of sadness. T'Challa, one of resolve and anger as Foster's sister asks how they could do this. Four opens to Foster's family. T'Challa and Aurora staring down into the grave as we hear a news report. The king and queen of Wakanda visited the gravesite of fallen superhero Bill Foster, a.k.a. Goliath, or as he was first known, Black Goliath. Foster is the highest profile death in the recent battles over the enforcement of the Superhuman Registration Act. Next we get T'Challa with a slew of news reporters, microphones in his face, as he says a man died senselessly and nobody bothered to ask why. We get an image of Thor, Mjolnir in hand, shooting a lightning bolt from his ancient weapon through Goliath's chest, killing the superhero instantly as the news report continues. At the gravesite, the family of Bill Foster announced a wrongful death lawsuit against the United States government, Stark Enterprises, and Fantastic for Incorporated. So the family suing everybody, as they should. Foster's mother addresses the press next, tears running down her cheeks. She says how does her son being a scientist make him a criminal? Foster's sister says the law doesn't make sense. She calls it unconstitutional and says it's made the world more dangerous, not less. In the final panel, we see Foster's father and he has the most damning statement of all. I am most disappointed by the behavior of Hank Pym, who was a close colleague of Bill and appears to be a co-conspirator in his death. We get an after volume 2 DVDs of Pinky and the Brain and the Animaniacs. I used to love Sunday nights. WB had a whole cartoon block that ran until 9 I think that started with the Animaniacs and ended with Pinky and the Brain. Two amazing TV shows and I'm super happy they're back on the air. We all just want our childhoods repackaged, am I right? Back to. Five opens to a Washington thing tank a room full of white men in suits trying to find dirt on bill foster to save public perception this is 100 percent a tactic deployed by law enforcement and we see it often whenever anyone is killed by police officers namely black people the immediate search to demonize and completely obliterate their character it is a tactic that preys on the bias of people removing the blindfold on justice and asking them to use their eyes not to see the facts of the incident that occurred in the moment in question but the color of the skin of the person involved and their past transgressions as an excuse for the violence done against them. An old white man in pince-nez glasses says Foster was a squeaky clean nerd who joined the wrong side. A red-headed guy with a receding hairline jumps in next, asking if Foster had any porn on his computers and if Foster liked boys. Another guy, blonde Carl Winslow in a gray suit and red tie, says that the Black Panther is responsible for this public backlash. And a young white guy, still in touch enough with the world to realize all of these men aren't, asks, Foster's family is full of academics, doctors, and attorneys. Why don't you think they could think of this to themselves. Blonde Carl Winslow glares at him. Blonde Winslow says exactly what a politician who doesn't care about the people would in the next panel, that this whole situation doesn't matter because the black vote won't mean much in the next election anyway. Red receding hairline says if this gets spun into an Emmett Till situation, it'll be a lot bigger than a black problem. In the final panel, we see the young redhead roll his eyes as Blonde Winslow asks who's Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy kidnapped in the dead of night tortured, shot, and dumped into a river after a white woman accused him of whistling at her in front of her husband's store in the South. Till's death, his open casket at the insistence of his mother Mamie Till, and subsequent not guilty verdict for his murderers was one of the many catalysts of the early civil rights movement. The murderer's wife later admitted to lying about the child whistling at her. I didn't have to Google any of that. 
When you're black American, you know it, even if you don't know history. When people say things like two Americas, I think they mean instances like that. One country with two histories and often it's the marginalized people who are forced to learn both while the majority have the privilege to refuse ours. Me, I gotta know Stonewall Jackson and the Stonewall Riots, the allies of World War I and the Rainbow Coalition. I gotta know the Duke John Wayne and Duke Ellington. I gotta know the Black Panther and the Black Panthers, T'Challa and Huey and Bobby. I have to or face alienation from both parts of myself and my history. White Americans don't have to. And I'm not casting aspersions, but the story of America? Whew, shit's deep, man. And I commend Marvel because I always believe they've done their best as far as a capitalist company can to be on the right side of that history. Back to We get an ad for Ages of Empires next. I love that game, conquering the world on computer. I remember there was a cheat code that turned all your horses into Dodge Vipers. Dodge Vipers with gun. I thought that was dope. Six, we see T'Challa shaking Bill's father's hand and Aurora hugging his sister as they are about to leave his family's home. Bill's sister tells Storm he had a crush on her, but that's Storm. It's literally who doesn't. Fun fact, Doctor Doom and Namor the Submariner and Magneto have all been smitten with Storm. She could literally have her pick of any and all of Marvel's most powerful kings. Grace, beauty, power, intelligence, you gotta love it. Bill's nephew asks to speak to T'Challa in private, and they do. He tells T'Challa that he's smart and he used to work with Bill in the lab. T'Challa asks if he needs financial assistance and the boy says no, that he's ROTC, hinting to the fact that he trains and he knows how to fight and he wants revenge. T'Challa tells him not to do anything stupid and the boy says he's not. He's going to do something smart. He's going to crack the code on Hank Pym's particle formula that allows him to grow and shrink. The boy tells T'Challa that he's going to do this with or without his help. In the final panel, T'Challa, placing a hand on the boy's shoulder, says he'll be in touch. Ten minutes later, we see the Black Panther's Blackbird. It's an X-Men's jet, probably a wedding gift from Charles Xavier. The Blackbird is racing over the Atlantic. Inside, Aurora is asking T'Challa if he just got a new soldier for his army, and T'Challa says he's just a boy who needs guidance, and he's going to keep him on the right track. Aurora says no, we need soldiers, that if she can't count on the X-Men, they absolutely have to have their own army in the States. T'Challa gives her a side-eye, but doesn't ask where this attitude is coming from. In the final panel, Aurora asked T'Challa if she told him lately that she loves him. We get an Afri home. Wow. First iteration. Series come a long, long way. But we turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, Infinity page. 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 Page 8. Just in time to see T'Challa and Aurora enter the Wakandan embassy. It's lavish, a penthouse with a parking space for the Blackbird and a pool on the roof. A servant tells T'Challa they have guests, and in the next panel, we see the couple leap from the balcony into a crowd of Wakandans. One, a young man with locks wearing a gold headdress, grabs Aurora by the arm and tells her this is family business and she needs to leave. Aurora just stares at his hand like she doesn't think the man wants to keep it. T'Challa says she's his queen, so she doesn't have to leave. In the final panel, we see his uncle, gray-haired with goatee to match, say, as you wish. Nine opens to T'Challa's uncle saying that they'd usually have this conversation by phone, but they wanted it in person to emphasize the point. Gold Hedris apologizes for speaking bluntly, but says things must be said. We get a close-up of Aurora saying good, that it's time she learned the family business. The two men glare at each other with suspicion in their eyes. In the next panel, we get a close-up of T'Challa's uncle, his large golden square earrings dangling from his ears as he says T'Challa spending so much time in America is unwise, that he's causing political problems and flirting with U.S. invasion of Wakanda. T'Challa says that threat was going to be there regardless. He remembers the Americans sending a dead army as quote-unquote aid. He thinks that America's Superhuman Registration Act could easily become a global policy of public safety. In the final panel, his uncle asks how long he thinks that will take. He says while T'Challa's ruling from abroad, his people are starting to believe he doesn't care about governing his kingdom. An ad for Magic the Gathering is next. I was a Yu-Gi-Oh kid myself, and I'm a munchkin man. 
but I know the king of card games. I respect it. On 10, Uncle continues saying that T'Challa's American wife is proof that his heart is no longer in Wakanda. Golden Lock says nature abhors a vacuum, that the longer T'Challa stays away, the more likely someone like Killmonger or Akibe will try to snatch his throne. T'Challa snaps, asking if they think Aurora is to be blamed, and his uncle says no. Your appetite for adventure and lack of homeland interest is to blame. Right, mind your yard. We get a close-up of T'Challa and Aurora scowling as his uncle says T'Challa is the king, so he'll leave the king to deliberate. And we watch them leave in the final panel. Page 11 opens to the two standing in silence a moment before Aurora says she'll gladly go back and stay in Wakanda with T'Challa, but he asks her what she thinks the right thing to do is. Aurora asks a question instead. How long do you think Wakanda can maintain its isolationist stance? For another hundred years? 50 years? Six months? T'Challa says every time there's upheaval in the world, people think Wakanda will be forced to end their policy of isolationism. Aurora asks if T'Challa doesn't think America will try to invade, and T'Challa says, Of course they will. They have always tried and always will. If for no other reason, than that we don't welcome them. Aurora says T'Challa sounds unsure of which direction to go to close out the page, taking his hand in the final panel and pressing up against him. T'Challa walks away from Aurora to open page 13 as she tells him it's okay to not always know what to do. And T'Challa gives the only answer a man like him would. Not when you are king. King of kings, to be sure. In the final panel, we see T'Challa's council boarding a plane back to Wakanda. Golden Locks asks if they were effective. Uncle says yes, because we didn't change his mind but we did change hers. 14 opens to an image of the Black Panther slicing through Iron Man's armor with the ebony blade in a gorgeous large panel. We're back in the State Department with the room full of politicians. Someone said they need a better PR team because Black Panther is killing them in the press. Blonde Winslow, his hands out of his sides, asks who cares what the French think, but the young redhead tells him Black Panther's building resistance to the Superhuman Registration Act around the world. His power and influence on full display. When Blonde Winslow asks why Iron Man didn't just kill him, Young Red tells him that Jim Rhodes, Philadelphia's very own war machine, called the truce. Plus, it was better Iron Man did it because nobody wants to see a popular African king dead. As if Black Panther couldn't tear Iron Man apart. We get a great panel of Black Panther in combat with Man-Ape as Blonde Winslow says, you're right, we want to look like patriots, not Klansmen. But he wants the Black Panther to learn he's not in the jungle anymore crazy because he just said he didn't want to look like the Klan. Page 15 opens to a man on television in a black suit and tie with red hair and mustache, square rimmed glasses. He's standing in front of a sign that says the spin zone and we see the American press machine working. I'm convinced they called JJ for pointers. The man says, as African King Black Panther and his wife, formerly of the mutant super team, the X-Men, get increasingly vocal about the Superhuman Registration Act, more and more people are asking tough questions. The next panel, we see a good old boy in a red shirt and trucker hat saying the Panther says, he's the Avengers friend, but he joined them to spy on them. Next panel, we see a blonde-haired, blue-eyed mother of three who says, his wife is some kind of weather witch, right? So when we get a hurricane or a drought, is that her doing? Or is she just letting it happen instead of helping us? Storm doesn't owe you any rain, lady. Next, a Wall Street broker wagging a gloved finger, also with blonde hair, asking where a king gets off telling Americans what to do when we decided we didn't need a king 200 years ago. We go back to the host of the spin zone who is now counting names off his finger as he continues. Of course the Black Panther has his supporters both abroad and at home. Before his arrival in the United States, he had secret meetings with Prince Namor of Atlantis and Dr. Doom, both of whom have tried to overthrow the U.S. in the past. And in the final panel, we get images of black leaders Al Sharpton and Louis Farrakhan as the spin doctor says, Black Panther support has diminished in the black American community. This PR team is working, but it is important to note, they didn't ask any black Americans at all their opinions. They asked all white people knowing the skew. The next page, we get an ad for Midtown Comics, homegrown comic shop in the heart of Manhattan. As a lifelong comic fan, this place is a little slice of heaven. 
If you're in New York and you love comics, hit up Midtown Comics. Tell them Gerald sent you. They'll have absolutely no idea who you're talking about, but say it with confidence and I bet you get the discount. I say Gerald sent me all the time. And I'm Gerald. 16 opens to a covert shield team overlooking the Wakanda embassy at night through night vision goggles. The shield agent watching asks if he should pursue, but is told not to as a caravan of six vehicles roll out. At the end of the block, the caravan splits into two groups of three at the light, one group going east, the rest west. The shield agent is asked if he can see the panther inside, but the vehicles are cloaked. Shield keeps following and the two groups split into six groups. But Shield's wasting their time because we see the King of Kings in the final panel beneath the tunnels of New York in a black leather jacket, pants, and flat cap, and he is on foot, and he is zooming. He pushes the sewer lid open onto page 17 and crawls out onto the New York street. A voice from off panel asks how he ran 15 miles in the New York sewer with his heightened sense of smell. And Black Panther says, we do what we have to, Natasha. And we see the Black Widow in all her red-haired glory leaning against the brick wall in her black costume with the large red buckle and Widow's bite arm gear. It's a gorgeous shot. Best panel in the comic by far. Widow, realizing the Panther isn't surprised to see her, asks if he knew she was tracking him the whole time. And Black Panther says, of course. He turns to leave the alley and Widow, pushing off the wall says don't make me have to but panther interrupts he says i would never fight a woman in the final panel we see natasha raise her right hand to shoot a widow's bite at black panther who continues speaking off panel i have people for that we turn the page and we got action as the Dora Milaje, the Black Panther's personal female bodyguards and some of the fiercest hands on planet Earth attack the Black Widow before she can fire. One, sporting all black, kicks Widow's forearm before she can get the shot off, while the second, wearing a white shirt, large golden earrings, gray tights and boots, leaps at Black Widow with a wooden staff cocked back. Widow fights back. She punches Black Shirt across the jaw with her right at the same time firing a bullet from her gauntlet, shattering the wooden pole before it can strike her. She looks over her shoulder realizing the panther's escaping, escaping at a leisurely stroll, mind you, when she's cracked across the jaw on the final panel. She wipes her lip to open page 19, staring down her two opponents and getting in a ready stance, says they have her full attention, and she's not playing with them anymore. I hope not, because when she raises her gauntlets in the next panel and pulls the trigger, both give her the Dr. No treatment. She stares down at her weapons, asking the women what did they do. But the question's rhetorical. We don't knock out of the door with the gold hoop's mouth in the next panel, flooring her, but is dropped by her partner with a vicious high jump kick that connects with the back of the Widow's skull. Y'all know I love Black Widow, but you gotta know, if there's more than one Dora Milaje in the building, you better make like an Autobot. Have an aspirin, Widow. You'll be fine. E Bombay. 20 opens to a large, muscular white man with blonde hair and a black mustache. He's carrying a mailbag and walking down the street. If he is a mailman, he's the biggest mailman I've ever seen. And we see Panther watching him from stage left. The man, realizing quickly that he's being followed, enters a roped-off subway station. Judging from the colors, orange, red, blue, I'd say they're somewhere in Midtown. Panther follows the man into the subway and finds that the man is waiting for him in a dark corner. Panther says, Hello, Steve. The man, cold air escaping his lips beneath his mustache, asks Panther who he is. Panther changes into his costume to open page 21. Steve, reaching into his bag, asks how the Panther found him. He suggests shield. Panther says, please. Pulling the iconic red, white, and blue shield from his duffel bag, Steve Rogers hurls it at the wall behind himself, causing it to ricochet off the metal of the walls and floor. He says anyone can wear the Panther suit, but he wants to know if the man has the skills to prove it. The shield rocketing at his face in the next panel, Panther says there are easier ways to prove he is who he says he is, before bending sideways at the waist easily in the final panel to dodge the approaching shield. He asks if attacking makes Steve feel better. We get a memorial to Dave Cockrum on the next page with a message that reads A Legend Among Heroes, 1943 to 2006. Dave Cockrum was a phenomenal artist and is credited with co-creating Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Storm, among others for the X-Men and Marvel's greatest thief, the Black Cat one of my favorite characters. He was busy over on the DC side as well. He worked extensively on art for the Legion of Superheroes. Mr. Cockrum, 
Thank you through the ether for the mark you left on comics. The universes are better for it. 22 opens and we see Cap's halfway suited and booted as his shield rockets back to his hand. Panther says he only wants to talk. And Cap says fine. We'll talk. He pulls his mask down over his face and cracks Black Panther across the jaw with a left cross, saying once you're on your back, we can talk all you want. Panther rubbing his jaw says that was uncalled for just before extra armor springs from his costume. Vibranium can absorb all the vibrations it wants, but Panther definitely felt that hit by the way he's rubbing his jaw. On 23, the two men circle each other, ready for battle. Cap tells Panther to tell him why he found him. Panther says, You're Captain America, the living symbol of this country. You could change the hearts and minds of the public if you talk to them. Captain America points at the exit sign over Panther's shoulder and asks how many more heroes need to die while they wait for opinion polls to change. Panther glances at the exit sign and the two remove their mask. I'm not sure if that was a code for peace or something, but I don't want my heroes clobbering each other anyway, so I'm cool with it. Panther asks how could they kill Goliath and still think they're in the right. Cap says there's only one way for the war to end now. In 24, we see the Panther talking sense. He tells Steve that Captain America can't contend with Tony using old shield equipment. Cap asks if T'Challa will supply him, and T'Challa says yes, under the table. When Cap asks what happens if Iron Man finds out, if he can count on the support of Wakandan soldiers as well, T'Challa gives him a small speech. I joined the Avengers because I feared something like this would come to pass. I quit another group for the same reason. Now it has happened. Of course, the other group he's referring to is the Illuminati, which T'Challa left once the group decided to proceed with the Superhuman Registration Act. So T'Challa's willing to help Captain America. He believes Iron Man, Hank Pym, and Snoop's Richard have gone too far. In the final panel, Cap says he's happy to hear it because he has a simple question. Can you help us get into the negative zone? Can you help us break into 42? 25 opens to Natasha in a sling talking to Iron Tony, no helmet, full armor, so you know how it goes. They're outside of a morgue being guarded by a shield agent with a rifle. Natasha says it was two of them, so lay off. Tony says he can't talk. A guy with no powers cut his chest plate off in midair. He's talking about T'Challa and it just shows Tony's ego. T'Challa has several powers. Tony, before integrating his biology directly with his tech, had none. A guy with a really big sword and hops cut you out of the air. Say that. If you haven't noticed, I'm not a fan at all of 616 Iron Man. I blame Pete. Back to. Iron Man says he can't judge Natasha, but Black Panther is lucky War Machine intervened when he did. The next panel, we see the Dora laid the baptizing hands on our favorite Avenger, as Black Widow has a large bruise on her right cheek, her right eye shut, swollen clothes, and a large band-aid on her forehead. E-bombay to the face. Tactician that she is, she's looking at angles. She says, I don't need to tell you. With Wakandan technology and the additional strategic help of the Black Panther and Storm, they could tip the scales. And what if Storm rallies the mutants to get involved? Tony puts a hand to his chin, thinking about it before he says, it's time for the big guns. In the final panel, we see a lifeless Thor laying on the slab of the room the shield guard is watching. His winged metal hat on his head, he is staring at the ceiling with an empty expression on his face. If this is the same Thor that ran down on the heroes in the ambush, Black Panther and company are in for some serious, serious chop. And that brings the issue to the close, letting us know that the next issue, the big guns are coming in. And we're out. That's the bonus episode this week. I love this run written by Hudlin. There is an unmistakable love, pride, and genuine black voice flowing through it. Admittedly for me, I'm not the biggest fan of how the men are drawn in this issue. I expect Black Panther to be lean and lift, and he's a bit bulky here, but it doesn't detract from the story, and the shot of Black Widow in the alley is probably the best I've ever seen of her in comics that's not a cover. I loved it. It's beautiful to look at. Next week's bonus episode is DC's Untold Tales of Blackest Night, number one, a collection of stories taking place in the heart of DC's undead apocalypse, Blackest Night. If we've got comics, we've got history, and you know if you join our crazy train barreling through it, the conductor is going to get you up to speed. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you already know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.